0: So if you've ever been, like, at a party with somebody who starts a conversation really badly, I want to give you some lines not to use, okay? So if you're at a party, this is something you don't want to start a conversation by saying. Um, I bet you don't work out, do you? You might want to think about it. That's a really bad way of beginning a conversation. Now, the next one for every redneck in here, and I know we don't have, that's not us, but in case... This is sort of a redneck party conversation starter. Does this look infected? Uh, So, again, not good. Now, I'm going to help us with some male-female stuff going on because, you know, when you have uh, husbands and wives, sometimes you you need to start the conversation. It's difficult. So I'm going to give you some heads up on what not to do. Here's a couple. Uh, Man to a woman, do not say, do you think I have too many tools. Uh, That is not the conversation you want to have. Now, ladies... When you're speaking to uh, your your man, uh, you don't want to say, "Does this dress make me look fat?" Uh, that is not, that's not a conversation starter. That's an opportunity for battle. So uh, you want to do that. All right, now men, I'm going to give you one more. Um, never say, "When's your baby due." That is never the right thing to say. I don't care if you know. Uh, You just never say it. Ladies, this is also never appropriate to say as a conversation starter. Do you notice anything different about me? We don't. Uh, I'm going to give you a heads up right now. You could change the color of your hair. You could pierce 17 things that we are not going to notice. So just so you know we're not going to notice. All right, so I'm, I'm trying to help you here. That's part of what I do as a pastor. I try to give you some help. Now, we are looking at the Apostles' Creed. We've kind of been working on it a little bit. We're, we're down the road some. And today we're looking at a very interesting part of the Creed. The reason we we're looking at the Creed, it's not so much anything other than it's a conversation starter. These are the things we believe. And I thought, hey, as a way of Starting the conversation around what we believe and why we believe it, let's just use the Apostles' Creed. It's an ancient document. A creed is simply a document that says, these are the things we believe. Okay. Now, this is how far we've gotten. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And now we get to, he descended to the dead and on the third day he rose again. However, some of you learned this, if you learned it from a church that practiced the creed, sometimes it says he descended into hell and on the third day he rose again. It's controversial, it's interesting. So let's just sort of unpack it a little bit, all right? The Creed doesn't tell us what to say or think. You have to understand this. We are people of the Bible. So is there any place in the Bible that talks about Jesus descending into hell? Well, honestly, it doesn't ever say that. In fact, on the cross, Jesus said to the the thief next to him, "...today you will be with me in paradise." In fact, everything that we understand about Scripture teaches us that once a person dies, their spirit goes to a place. Uh, Heaven or hell, we have this. Your spirit goes somewhere. Paul one time said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so there's no indication from Scripture that, uh, that Jesus went to hell. But what we have to understand, this is more of a translation issue than anything else. Um, There are three words in the Bible for hell. In the Old Testament, it was called Sheol, and it's this sort of, it's this dark kind of place of the unknown where people go when they die. Sometimes it's translated the grave. Now the New Testament version of Sheol is Hades. Again, it's that place where somebody goes when they die, it's known as the grave. Gehenna is another word for hell. This is the one Jesus used to describe the pain and suffering of hell, and it comes from outside of of um, Jerusalem. There was this trash dump. Uh, it was called the Valley of Hinnon, and Gehenna was this place. When they talked about Gehenna, they they thought it's a trash heap where there's fire and wild dogs, and pain, and suffering, and it it's, a, it's an ugly picture of an ugly place. So, when we hear Jesus descended into hell, what we hear isn't he descended into the grave, the first words, but rather he descended into Gehenna, which doesn't really make any sense. However, what we do need to understand is this, and I think this is profound. There is a sense in which Jesus... Though he didn't experience hell, the place, he experienced separation from God, and if hell is defined as separation from God, which I would think it is, then Jesus experienced that. Let me show you a couple of verses, uh, a couple of things Jesus said from the cross, okay? A couple of things Jesus said from the cross. On the cross, Jesus cried in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only instance in Scripture where Jesus doesn't call God His Father. It's the only time. There's no other place. The one time that Jesus calls God God and not Father is right here. He's on the cross, and there's a separation. Now, let me tell you something. My feeble mind has a very difficult time of figuring out how the Trinity. We believe in the Trinity: Father, Son, Holy Spirit how Father, God the Father could be separated from God the Son. If you need an in-depth explanation of that, I'm, I'm not going to be able to give that to you because I don't understand it. It doesn't mean I don't believe it, I just don't understand it. And in some profound way, there was separation between God the Father and God the Son on the cross. Now, a few minutes later, Jesus says this, and this I think is the profound thing. Jesus called out in a loud voice just like he did the first time the first time he says my God my God Why have you forsaken me now? Just a bit later. He says father into your hands. I commit my spirit and when he said this he breathed his last I don't know how long this was this separation it might have just been a moment in time But there was a moment in time that is extremely profound where God the Father and God the Son are separated. And something in that moment happens that affects you and me. It is beneficial for you and me. And I want to show you. Look at Galatians. It says, Christ paid the full price to set us free from the curse of the law. He absorbed it completely as he became a curse in our place while he's on the cross, while he's separated from God. Jesus, our Messiah, was cursed in our place and in so doing dissolved the curse from our lives. I want to note, notice a couple of things here, a couple of, of uh, words. Christ paid the full price to set us free. Paid the full price. Would you like to know how often I pay the full price for anything? That would be never. Uh, I ne- uh, gas, you have to pay. I mean, they robbers. They, they pay you and you pay it. All right, they, they charge and you pay. But if I have an option pay full price or wait for a bargain i'm the guy when i go in to shop for something if it's not on the rack that says uh something percent off of already reduced price i don't even look at it i have never shopped anything clothing wise you can tell by my wardrobe i don't pay full full, i don't pay full price i mean you can tell i do not pay full price These shoes, at least 50% off. This jacket, 75% off. This shirt, they gave it to me. It's pink. I mean, that's how it works. What would I pay full price for? There's nothing much that I would pay full price for. When I bought my, Miriam may not know this, when I bought my wife's engagement ring. it's It's nice, isn't it? It's lasted 20-something years. How many? How, where are we? 28 almost? 28 years. Um, the story goes, I, I got it off at 40% off, and I had a coupon. <laughs> I got more off. I can't remember what. And then Miriam said, we're talking, and she said, I don't really like the rings that stick up. And I'm like, oh, I have to take it back. So uh, I took it back. And then another conversation a day later, she said, well, those aren't too bad. And I'm like, ah. So I had bought this ring for way cheap, and I gave it back. And so I went to the sales lady that I had taken it back, and I said, let me ask you something. Can I untake back what I already brought back? Can you give it back to me? I'll pay you what I, you know. And she said, oh, we can do that. So uh, it was on the cheap. Everything's on the cheap, except... Christ paid the full price. You want to know why he paid the full price? You're worth it. I would pay, if I had it to do over again, full price for that engagement ring, because she's worth it. She is worth it. And we're having ribs uh, for lunch, so I had to kind of throw that out, because really, it's really worth it. It's really, really good. You, you are worth it and, and I, I, I have i don 't think i 'd ever noticed that part of that text that christ didn 't try to get you on the cheap you know he didn 't have a coupon he he paid the full price he paid for every sin now, in some of our cases, that is quite expensive because some of us are, we're great at sinning we we have a past that is so sinful and he paid the full price every sin we ever commit Jesus paid for it in that time of separation on the cross he took our sins and he paid for them see here's the deal Christ never sinned but God put his sin on him then we are made right with God because of what Christ has done I am supposed to pay for my sin, and yet Jesus took it away. Here's the truth. When Jesus died on the cross, the greatest bailout in human history took place. It's the greatest bailout in human history. Because on the cross, God punished Jesus for what he should have punished me for. God punished Jesus for what he should have punished you for. Our sins. And yet Jesus took all those. He paid the full price for every one of them. Now, let me uh, illustrate just a bit. There's a guy named uh, Joshua Butler. He wrote a book called The Pursuing God, and he talks about it like this, that let's say you have a fence in your yard and your neighbor loses control of their car. Maybe it's ice or snow or something, and they lose control and they... They slide into your fence and they tear it up, and you're a good neighbor. And what you say to your friend is, "Forget about it." Or if you're from the north, forget about it, and, and you just you forget about it, and you say, "I'm going to cover the cost." Of the, you just don't worry about it, and your 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 neighbor is thankful. But what they understand, what we understand, is it's not like the fence is going to fix itself. Somebody's got to pay to fix the fence, and you're going to fix defense. Let me give you a more complex example. In 2008, there was this banking crisis and housing crisis, and we were told that there were banks who were, there's an expression, they were too big to fail, right? So the government bailed out certain institutions to the tune of 700 billion dollars. There's the number right over there. Um, 700 billion dollars. Now, did that Money just materialize? No, somebody has to pay. In this case, we got to pay. You're welcome. Uh, you know, you got to pay for somebody else's mistake. And this is what Jesus does for us. He personally pays the cost. He personally paid the cost for what you and I have done. And here's the exchange. Our sin is put into Christ's account, and his righteousness is put into our account. that's the transaction. A couple of my girls are here this morning who aren't normally here. Janelle is a a student, a senior at uh, Union University. She's here, and Amaris is going to have her birthday in a couple of days. And she came down to visit us, and she lives in Louisville. And Janelle is a college student. Y'all, if you've ever had kids who are college students, understand that... um, they have something called insufficient funds uh, in their bank accounts most of the time. I mean, that's kind of how it works. It's part of what being a college student is. And though she works, you know, four or five jobs, she's always working. Every time you talk to her, she's go, either going to a job or coming from a job. She she works. It, it's not about not working. It's about she's a college student. You have to go to classes and those sorts of things, and you have to keep up your grades, et cetera, et cetera. And so my sweet wife has access to her, bank account as pitiful as it is. And on occasion, like now, Janelle indicates she'd like to come home. Well, we'd like her to come home. We'd love her to come home. We want her to come home as much as she wants to come home. So my sweet wife, she transfers funds from our accounts electronically, from our accounts to Janelle's account. They just sort of magically appear. They disappear from my account, my hard-earned money account. They, they, they disappear here, and all of a sudden they appear here. And Janelle takes her debit card, and when she's coming home, she pays for gas, and she pays for food, and we are happy to do it because we love Janelle. Janelle. We are ecstatic to take this money and put it in this account because the person this account represents is much more important, much more valuable to us than money. And Christ in this exchange had a perfect sinless account and he took his sinlessness and he put it into our accounts and he paid our price that we could not pay on our own. And it doesn't matter how good you are and how much you keep the law. A minute ago it talked about the curse of the law. The curse of the law is this. It just shows us we can't live perfectly enough to win God's favor. We had to have somebody rescue us. We weren't going to get home if we didn't get somebody else's resources. And so Jesus gave us his and put it in our account. This is what transpired on the cross, and Romans 5 talks about the benefits. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. We were separated from God, but then because of what Jesus has done. And it, and it gives us this amazing opportunity. Here's what we don't have to do. I heard somebody explain it this way the other day. You can live like a child or you can live like a slave. It's your choice. A child lives um, to, not to win the favor of the parent, it shouldn't anyway, but the child lives in the love of the parent. A slave, however, is trying to win the approval of the slave master. We are children. We are not slaves. And so because of what Christ has done, we have peace with God. We don't have to worry about all that stuff. And then when we sin, and unfortunately we still sin, we don't have to wallow in that. In fact, let's carry on the banking metaphor. We can keep short accounts. In fact, look what it says. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin but if anyone does sin which is sort of it's kind of, it's kind of funny, it's sort of a little bit tongue in cheek. <laughs> However, it might happen. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. By the way, we're talking about that next week. Next week, um, the creed says that he ascended into heaven and he sits at God's mighty right hand, and that is great stuff. And it's Easter, and uh, if you can park up on the upper lot, I need you to do that. Okay, uh, just uh, put a plug into for that right now. Um, but here's the beautiful thing. I can keep a short account. And then there's this, there's this entity called the accuser, Satan. And he will whisper in your ear and you'll make a mistake and he accuses you. And yet, even because we have peace with God, it says there's no, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can live in this sort of godly peace that... I don't have to win God's favor, and if I mess up, he is eager to forgive me, and even though someone accuses me, I don't have to listen to the accusations because they're simply not true. We have an advocate, and he's, he's taken up for us, and that's exactly what we need. See, Christ experienced separation from God, so we never have to. And I don't know how long that moment was on the cross between my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. I don't know how long a time that was. I just know that in that amount of time, he paid for our sins. And I don't know how it worked, and I don't know (laughs) what it looked like. But this is what we believe. But it's more than that. He didn't just do that. He died and was buried and was separated in some mysterious way from God. And however, on the third day he rose again. We celebrate that next week. We're going to talk about it right now. Look, look. In First Corinthians it says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of those who have Who've fallen asleep. Let me tell you, not everybody believes in the resurrection. We talked about that a bit last week that there are theories around, oh, Jesus didn't really die, uh, the swoon theory, and, or he died and the, the disciples went to the wrong place, called the, the wrong tune theory. I mean, we have these theories out there that, that really didn't happen. But we believe in the resurrection, but not every resurrection is, I don't know, miraculous. This is a a picture of a guy named Winston Bright. It's the best picture I could find, by the way. He's sort of infamous, not really famous. On October, let's see, October the 12th, 1990, he went to his job. He lived in New York, and he went to his job at the New York Telephone Company. And like any other day, he kissed his wife and his three kids goodbye. They were quite young at the time. And as a 41-year-old man, he went to work and at lunch he called his wife on a phone that wasn't a cell phone because in the 1990s that's all you had. It had the wire. It was so archaic. And uh, uh, he called his wife and said, I'll see you at 5.30. I'll be home for work. And he never showed up, never came back home from work. And it caused a stir in New York City and there was a missing persons bulletin sent out. And for a year they looked for him and they couldn't find him. And after 10 years of looking, 10 years of looking, his wife, her name is Leslie, asked the court to pronounce that he is dead. I mean, 10 years, that's a long time to look for somebody. After 10 years, they said, okay, he's officially dead, and she could collect his retirement and his pension, his pension and his insurance. However, he wasn't quite dead. Winston Bright. Now, this is uh, what he said. Um, he, he, on 1990, on the way home, he says he suffered a form of amnesia and didn't know where his home was. So, he ended up in California. He changed his name to Kwame Suku, I believe it was, Seku, Sidu, something like that. And uh, he starts to teach. Now, This was in 1990. He sort of establishes a new thing, except in 2007 or 2008, I can't remember now exactly the detail, but he remembers who he is, and so he shows up back in New York City. Now, let's take a quick poll. How many of you think he received a warm reception from his wife and kids who he hasn't seen in 27 years? Oh, you all are cynical. Okay, how many people believe he probably didn't get a good reception when he came home? Did you buy the story of I had some sort of amnesia? Yeah, she didn't either. In fact, come to find out, he sort of kind of wanted his pension back. So he came up, this was the headline of the story. Dead man missing for 27 years returns, wants to be declared alive. Uh, You know, I'd like to be alive so I could get my stuff. Okay. And we hear stories of this and we think, oh, you know, that guy's just, he's trying to pull one over. And there are people who think that Jesus just has tried to pull one over on people. And I mentioned this the other day, kind of in passing, but let's unpack it a little bit more because I believe the greatest testimony to the resurrection of Christ are his disciples. I think the strongest evidence is his disciples because you have, guys, when Jesus was arrested, it says they all fled, his disciples. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're praying. Judas shows up with a contingency of guards, he kisses Jesus on the cheek, that's the indication that this is the guy you're looking for, they come in and arrest him. Peter has this moment of swag, and he comes out and he chops a guy's ear off, and Jesus said, dude, those who live by the sword die by the sword, and he, Jesus miraculously heals the guy's ear, and then everybody runs away. And Peter, who had only hours before, said, Lord, if I have to die with you, then so be it. And Jesus said, I don't think so, brother, because before the rooster crows the uh, the next morning, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, that ain't going to happen. And Jesus is arrested and they flee and Peter can't quite separate himself completely from Christ. And so he sort of huddles in the courtyard where Jesus is being tried and people start accusing him of being one of Jesus' followers. And he says, no, 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 I don't even know the man. One time, no, not just once. Twice, yes, and then a little girl accuses him of being a follower of Christ and he is so scared that even a little girl's accusation causes him to say, I never knew him. And it says in Scripture, at that moment, Jesus looks up. Can you imagine this pain? The man who you swore to allegiance to death an hour before, a couple hours before, looks at you and it says that Peter ran out of the room and wept bitterly. And then the resurrection happens. And do you know where they find the disciples? Because the ladies, the women, the Marys, they go to the tomb. And they find the tomb empty. And they go to the, the, this upper room where the disciples are holed away, scared for their lives. And they say, hey, the, Christ has risen. <laughs> and it says two of them go to see. Well, there's more than two of them. Only two of them were willing to even venture out of the room. They are scared out of their minds. But then they see the empty tomb, and then they see the resurrected Christ, and it is as if a light switch was switched on, and these boys go from super chicken to super fly. I mean, they go nuts. They start being incredibly bold. Let me show you an Acts 4. You need to read Acts 4 sometime. Peter and John were teaching the people that Jesus... um, that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They're preaching this in public in the town square. Now, the people who just had Jesus executed, they don't like this. So, this is what happens. The member of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, because they had them arrested, thrown in jail. They call them before him overnight, and they say, For they could see that they were ordinary men, no special training. They were just like us. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. Now, Peter and John are standing before the folks who days before orchestrated the execution of Jesus. I mean, these boys had power, like life and death power. I mean, they really had power. And these guys said, well, you, you have to... Stop talking about Jesus. you got to stop it. We are commanding that you stop it. And look at what they say. The council commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Peter and John said, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than Him? We cannot stop telling everything we have seen and heard. I mean... A couple of days before this, Peter is denying to a little girl that he even knows Jesus. Now he's saying, I am never going to stop talking about Jesus. Super fly from super chicken. I mean to tell you, for me, Jesus has a brother, his name is James. There's a book in the Bible written by James. He became the great leader of the church in Jerusalem. James begins to believe that Jesus was God's son. What would it take for you, for one of your brothers or sisters, to start saying that you are God's son? It'd take a lot, wouldn't it? Maybe coming back from the dead? That's what it would take. These guys went from craven cowards to bold ambassadors. This is the power of the resurrection. Look at what it says here. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Now, what Paul is talking about, first firstfruits, um, in the Old Testament, when you harvested a crop, the first 10% of your crop you gave to the church. You gave to the temple. It's the first fruits. It is a thanksgiving offering of what God has given you. We do it at church. We take up an offering. It is a, it's a thanksgiving offering. We thank God for what he's given us. We uh, want to be obedient to him. We want to uh, express our trust that he's going to continue to provide. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a promise that not just Jesus was going to be resurrected, but we are going to be resurrected as well. Christ's resurrection from the grave is an assurance of the resurrection of all of us, those of us who believe. That text said, those who fall asleep. It's kind of a, a euphemism for death. And the reason that the Bible talks about death as sleep is because we wake up. <laughs> we don't stay dead. Our spirits don't stay dead. We, we don't stay dead. We sleep. Not a soul sleep, but our bodies sleep and then they're resurrected to glory. And Paul one time said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Let me show you two things real quickly. The standard of God's power in the Old Testament was when he raised a nation from the dead. The Israelites went to Egypt... They were captured, you know, they were slaves, and he delivered them. He brought Israel out of Egypt. He acted with a strong hand. So the standard in the Old Testament was God raising a nation from the dead. The standard in the New Testament is God raising Christ from the dead. Look at Ephesians. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. The resurrection literally means to be raised up, to stand up. That's what it means. Let me end with this. I don't know that it was taxing on God to create the universe. It says in Scripture, He he spoke things into existence. Let there be light, and there was light. How much effort did that take? He spoke stuff into existence. Let, Let the heavens and the earth separate. And they separated. It didn't seem to take much effort. But I'm not sure God ever said, let Calvary, let there be Calvary, and there was Calvary. I, I, think, I think it cost him. And it, again, it's one of those mysteries I don't exactly understand, but I don't think it was as easy as creation. Because to eradicate the sin of all the world, it says it took mighty power. Let me end with an illustration. There's a new movie out called All the Money in the World. This is John Paul Getty. In the 70, early 70s, his grandson, John Paul Getty III, was kidnapped. Getty, at the time, was an oilman and worth several billion dollars. He was a billionaire. He, was, in fact, was the wealthiest private individual in the world at the time. Billions of dollars. He's worth billions. And his grandson is kidnapped in Rome. Now, the grandson's mother has been... Um, they, they've, she's divorced John Paul Getty II, and so she doesn't have money. The, the ransom was $17 million. $17 million for a man who has billions. And Getty refuses to pay the ransom. Mostly because he said, it's just going to prompt other people to kidnap other of my family, and I'm not going to support that. So he has a grandson, those of you who are grandparents, this is going to freak you out. He has a grandson who is kidnapped, and he won't pay the ransom. In fact, the kidnappers get frustrated. They cut off John Paul Getty Third's ear, mail it to him, in hopes that it will prompt a payment. John Paul Getty, the senior, says, Okay, I'll, I'm willing to contribute $1 million to the ransom. Because, let me give you the quote here. Um, Only a million because that's the maximum amount that can be claimed on my tax deductions. <laughs> He's warm. Uh, that's one warm cat right there. Eventually, he pays the $4 million and the kid is returned. Now, here's the question. For John Paul Getty to pay $4 million out of a... Out of a, a a fortune consisting of billions would be like me taking a $5 bill out of my wallet and, and paying for something. I mean, it didn't really, probably the $4 million ransom probably didn't even affect him. He, he, I bet he didn't notice it. Now, for you and me, that's a lot of money. I get that. But for a guy who is a billionaire, $4 million or even $17 million, which is the asking price, that's the full price, by the way. Isn't that interesting? We just saw a text that says that Christ paid the full price. (laughs) See, this is human nature. Looking for a bargain. Trying to get it on the cheap. Seeing what my tax deductions are going to be. And we say to ourselves, oh, I would never do that. Well, When you become a billionaire, come talk to me and start tithing. Uh, You know, that's. uh, um, There's a human condition called sin, and we don't look at things right. We don't look at things well. The power of the resurrection is that Jesus was willing to pay the full price. He took his righteousness, his perfection. And somehow, miraculously, he put it into our accounts. And this is what we have to work with for the rest of our lives. We get to work with the riches of Christ in our accounts. And I don't have to worry that God doesn't love me or God gets mad at me or God's going to write me off or God's going to kick me to the curb. I don't have none of that to worry about because Christ's sacrifice paid for my sin. And Christ's separation means I never have to be separated. And Christ's resurrection means that when I die, I get that resurrection too because that's in my accounts. That's just like really, really good news. We have the power to live in the day. We also have the assurance of forever. Those of us who've accepted the payments that Christ made for us. See, it's not automatic. It's not automatic withdrawal. I have to accept it. God offers it to me. Christ paid for it. I have to accept it. I have to say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I have to say, Lord, I want to live for you. I'm, I'm going I'm to live in this bank account now. The bank account of your righteousness, that's how I'm going to live. And it, when I sin, and I'm probably going to sin. I'm going to sh- keep short accounts with you. This is what Christ did on the cross. He made all this possible. He made forgiveness possible. He made resurrection possible. This is what we believe. Father, we thank you for Jesus and the sacrifice he made. And we're excited that he made that sacrifice because that means that moment he was separated, he paid for our sins. And Father, I don't know if everyone in the room has accepted that gracious, amazing offer. But if there be anybody who hasn't said to you, I am a sinner and I need that payment. Somebody has to pay for sin and I pray God that you would pay for it through Christ. And Lord, I want to live in a way where I believe in the resurrection and that when I die, I get to be with you forever. If there is anybody that hasn't made that commitment, I pray that you would draw them unto yourself so strong that it is nearly irresistible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.